Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. Today's podcast coming to you from Paris, where I managed to catch up with one of my great friends and former colleagues, Andy Greenaway. Andy is a big name in advertising in Asia. He has worked there and lived there for almost two decades and headed up some of the biggest agencies in the region. Um, myself and Andy worked together as colleagues in Saatchi and Saatchi in the middle noughties for about four years. Andy's got a great outlook on life, very nice fella, guy who considers and thinks a lot, and the guy's got a lot of points of view, and I hope, and you'll see a lot of the wisdom that he has to share. So, without further ado, over to a rather noisy hotel in Paris, Andy Greenaway. So, welcome, Andy. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here in Gay Paris. I wanted to talk to you first about your early days and how you ended up getting into advertising and what were some of the seminal moments that happened. I went, I went to quite a famous college that was known for generating advertising guys. You could only get into an advertising agency in those days if you were part of a team, if you were a copywriter and an art director. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wasn't. I was by myself. So I actually didn't get into advertising, I went into direct marketing instead. So my first job was with, was with O&M Direct. At that time, the direct marketing business was exploding and they couldn't get the talent because everyone wanted to go into advertising. So I got paid more money. I worked really hard, got paid more money. Every three months I was getting a pay rise. And suddenly I got a company car and I became a group head of a big account like BT, for instance. When I eventually got into advertising, I realized the world was changing and what I learned early on has now helped me tremendously because the world's gone back to direct marketing on a, a super steroid basis. But I, I found when I was working with you, uh, you know, I, I often say that the, some of the best planners can be creatives and some of the best creatives can be planners. So stress, the idea of being an ad guy, the idea of being a person who just knows how to do advertising or how to sell something. And I, I remember when we started working together, I always got that feeling from you that you, 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 know, you weren't just about, oh, let's just kind of do wacky crazy stuff was you, you still had that DNA inside your system from your early days I started off as an art director then I became a writer and when you become a writer you really know and learn how to become a hawker uh, and to really convince people to go over the line and part with their money and give it to you yeah which in advertising you don't quite do you leave that to somebody else like a the dealer yeah. If you're a car salesman, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And so when I actually eventually got into advertising, I quite often had this kind of conflict. because so I started working with great people like Neil French uh, and other people like Steve Eric and, and all those kind of guys who were pretty prominent in the day. But then we'd start talking about stuff in terms of what made great advertising. And I'd go, ooh, I'm not sure I believe that. Because yeah. it kind of went against what I'd learnt so, so what, what prompted you to move to Asia? What were the reasons um, behind that or thinking behind that? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'd fallen out with a girl. <laughs> so she sure. became a stalker. So <laughs> to be absolutely blunt. Uh, I'm sure she's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are, here's his number. No. <laughs> I'm not saying who it is. I'm not naming the person. I was in O&M Direct for six years in London with my boss, Drayton Bird, who at the time was worldwide ECD for O&M Direct. I said, Drayton, I need, to get out of, I need to get out of London. He says, well, fun enough, Andy, we've got a place going in Singapore. 
Did you know Singapore? I, I, I read a few books. Do you think it was in China? Well, I, I didn't know it geographically. Yeah, you know, I, know. I kind of knew it. Was, I thought it was actually quite close to Japan because yeah. I'd read a lot of books about World War Two, yeah. where the Japanese invaded. So yeah. I thought, well, it must be quite close to Japan. Yeah. But he said, look, there's a place going in Singapore. We need someone quite quickly. Do you want to go there? And I went, yeah, okay. So, so I, th- I think I uh, talked to him about this in October, and by January 9th, I was on a plane to Singapore. And I remember flying business class on Singapore Airlines. Uh, and you got these beautiful Singapore Airlines girls yeah. uh, in their cabanas and stuff, uh, putting blankets over you. And going, yeah. oh, this is quite nice, isn't yeah. it? But, uh, but I'd, gone, I'd gone there on a two-year contract, and I was supposed to go back to London. But after two years... Uh, of living in Singapore, you know, you suddenly have this lifestyle where you've got a beautiful condo, you've got a swimming pool, yeah. you've got amazing food. Yeah. Oh my God, you've got some warm weather. I remember uh, when I went over there in 96, it was my first Christmas there. Like, I was about to go home for Christmas, but I was walking through like Chinatown trying to buy Christmas presents, and there was, you know, all this. Bing Crosby was singing in these tiny <laughs> places. I was like, and it was like you know, two hundred degrees. I was sweating like a pig. But but it was also just uh, I travel I traveled quite a lot because my dad was in the army. Right. But it was it was just a, such a different culture. The rituals you get both things like Chinese New Year, Harry Raya. Yeah. It's just, so just on that, we, we we I'm very good friends with Major David Greenaway as well, who's Andy's dad. He'll probably be listening to this and sending it to his friends because he's very proud of Andy. But how how much of an influence was your dad in in the, your ability to up sticks and just take on an adventure? And well, they say they say that your motives in life are formed by the time you're ten, and, and so I suppose I've had the travel bug ever since then without maybe, really knowing it maybe sometimes reluctantly as well yeah, so I'm yeah. not an avid keen oh I want to go and see these places I just happened upon them in, yeah. in many ways you put down your roots in Singapore you married a Singaporean lady you have children from you know and, and w- w- was that about finally arriving somewhere that you felt yeah I suppose they, they say wherever you lay your hat is your home right and yeah. for me that was especially true so I've been in Asia for 25 years I haven't been in the UK that long because yeah, I, was, yeah. I was in Cyprus, I was in Bahrain, I was in Germany. I've spent most of my life in Singapore now. And I still have an English accent, although like, I can still speak a bit <laughs> of Singaporean. Right? Okay. <laughs> what was it like, actually, when you landed and started working there? It was... Uh, I came from a fairly hectic environment anyway, from a work point of view in Earnham Direct. I mean, I was working 60 hours, up to 70 hours a week, and which was a big difference between my friends that got into advertising who you know I remember going to my friends who were working at FCB at one point you know they were coming in late because they had a hangover so they start working at about 10 o'clock by 11 o'clock they're in the pub <laughs> yeah so one solid hour yeah and, and, the, and the pub then shut by about I think in those days 2 o'clock yeah. so they kind of started to try and do some work again but this time they're a bit tippled and by about 5.30 they're back in the pub and they did that every single day Wow. I, I could never do that in my job. Yeah. You know, we literally were in, not uh, always early, yeah. sometimes we were in at kind of 9.30, but you were working till kind of 10 o'clock every night, and quite often you're going at the weekends, and that was the difference. I had that in New York, and a bit in Singapore. Yeah, first went but you know, you've got to remember those, those days in the mid-80s, agencies were still kind of fat, and people didn't work that hard. It was a real rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah. So we weren't like that. We were the other way around. We worked our socks off. To tell me about the, tell me about the support to Hong Kong move and back to Singapore. What happened there? What was that? Well, I mean, but going back to Singapore, Sorry. I haven't answered your first question. So I went there, and it wasn't dissimilar. It was very similar to, to the UK environment. 
uh, except for suddenly I came across Singapore clients, right. and they were different. Yeah, and they were quite uh, where where kind of the English clients were more tell me what I should do. Yeah, but also gave you, you have a to decipher what gave you a bit of authority and said, no, but I want this kind of area. Yeah, uh, Singapore clients were no, I want this, right. and they were very kind of directional. What I found out very quickly was that there were a lot of colorful nuances used against me in yeah. terms of my opinions. But within a year, I realized that they were quite often irrelevant. Yeah. And what I realized very quickly was that uh, universally, people are the same. So the same uh, desires, the desire for sex, yeah. the desire to be seen as prosperous, the desire yeah. for wealth, the desire um, to be liked, they're the same everywhere in the world. I, I, felt, I felt that there was uh, the biggest thing that's kind of affected our business, if I look back on my career, was just this, we lost trust somewhere along the line from our clients or something happened where clients felt that they knew the answer. I, I, I feel it's cyclical. You know, at 26, I realized I had, uh, I had a lot of influence on clients and I kind of taught them quite a bit. Quite a grand thing to say to be able to teach at 26, but I'd learned such a lot yeah. in that time. But, but what I've realized is that you kind of teach clients and they get on side, but then they retire yeah. or they go to another job. And then you've got all these new guys coming through and then suddenly they go through the whole cycle. They have to be retaught. Yeah. And I find, it, I find that bizarre. Because we, I mean, I remember even you and I we used to go into meetings. We knew we had the answer. We knew we had something that was potent. But in the early days of data, it was like, well, who said that? And like as a planner, you had to kind of almost reinforce your positioning or your strategy with a consumer soundbite. You know? Well, well, I, I got invited to a forum a while ago, and I can't even remember the guy's name, but he was a consultant who had um, various, very, very senior CEO clients. But he said, look, Andy, I, I do these forums, and I get my clients basically choose a topic, and then I get antagonists, and I get protagonists for that cause and he decided to, to choose market research if I'm going to take on these guys I might actually be better off doing some research myself and I found this book called Cognitive Psychology it's the book that they all use at these big universities if you're going to graduate in psychology and I thought right that'd be interesting I wonder if there's anything about focus groups there was one sentence that talks about focus groups. Yeah. And it basically said, focus groups don't work because humans lie. And that's all it said about it. And the rest of the book, which is about 600 pages, was about proper, deep, cognitive yeah. science with research behind it. Proper research. Yeah. Statistical research. So, so anyway, so I turned up to my, my little forum and I was the only antagonist against market research. Yeah. Everyone else was the head of Research International, head yeah. of Millward Brown, yeah. all these people. I read this sentence out, and every single one of them went, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we agree with that, yeah, yeah, no, focus goes on. I said, really? Because it seems to me that this is the heart of your yeah. business. Yeah. The other thing I realized about uh, uh, research is that it's not in their interest for your commercial to come out squeaky clean. So then how do they make money? If everything came out squeaky clean through Millward Brown research yeah. and, and other research as well, yeah. then what's their role? Yeah, exactly. So that that whole part of the business as well, that there's got to be fault with your ad, or otherwise yeah. I'm not doing my job. And so that's the whole kind of dichotomy with this this, this business. Well, let's go back on to the, 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 the chronology. So then there was a, a move from uh, Singapore to uh, Hong Kong, right? So the guy I worked with in Singapore was a guy called Paul O'Donnell, and uh, he got promoted to regional boss 
for Southeast Asia. And he said to me, look, Andy, I know you like Singapore. I'm going to Hong Kong. I'd love you to come there as my partner. Um, and he said, by the way, the handover's coming. So it's probably a good time to be there just because of the historical significance. Yeah, of around 97 now. Yeah. yeah. I saw this significant difference between Singapore and Hong Kong just in just terms of the scale of the business. Hong Kong was massive. It made Singapore look like a minnow in terms of the volume of the work and the size of the work and the size of the opportunities. But it was big and it was fast and it had impact. And uh, there's no tenders or anything. No, no, I want to give you the business. I like you. You can do me the good job, so I'm going to give you the the job. But the agency uh, was getting so many requests for pitches. They were getting 10 a week. And I remember they came to us and said, look, we've been approached by ESPN. And I hadn't heard of ESPN, because yeah. I'm English. Yeah. They hadn't heard of ESPN. But since Not I was, a lot of people around the world have heard of it. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, ESPN. <laughs> so I uh, said, so, well, what is it? Well, it's a sports channel. And they, they want to launch in Asia. And Hong Kong's their base. Uh, on the back of that, we actually didn't do any direct marketing. We just did proper kind of good old-fashioned ads. Yeah. And we did some really nice ads. And, and Neil French had just join Neil French is uh, for those people in the audience that don't know was the guru uh, at the time in advertising who was the godfather of advertising and uh, in Asia in Asia and he came into Hong Kong and he happens to kind of come into the basement which we, I, I like to call our bit as a kind of bit underneath yeah. the rest of the agency in the, the dark shadows the engine room, the engine room. <laughs> I showed him some of these ESPN ads he says oh my god this is the best work I've seen across the region and you're not even an advertising agency you're the DM agency so he started inviting me to his uh, regional crate director meetings uh, another brief came from uh, the agency for uh, Speedpost and they were renowned to be kind of cheap low budget yeah. pretty hard to deal with yeah. what we didn't know was that they'd, they'd hired a new postmaster general so we won the pitch with work which was okay, strategy was good, but they really liked us. There was, a, there was a chemistry in the room. And they came back and said, our postmaster general thinks the work could be better. Can you push it further? And we went, yeah, we can push it further. We went back to this work. We actually went back to this line, which was, we put time on your side. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, at the time, DHL and FedEx were all doing just-in-time management. They were kind of yeah. focusing on all the, kind of the, the corporates of, and logistics yeah, side yeah. of it. But as a result, it all became really bland and corporate yeah. and blamange. So we went, no, let's go back to we put time on your side. And we did these, these beautiful ads. And we went into the client, presented the work with great pride. And the Postmaster General did what all creative people hate to hear. What does everybody else think? You go, oh, my God. Death by a thousand cuts. It's going to be a death by a thousand cuts. So it starts at the left of him. Well, I think it's the wrong audience. They went to the next person. Well, you know, there's not enough promotion. And it went round about 15 people. And I'm going, oh, my God, it's over. And he came back to the Postmaster General. He said, any more comments? And no one spoke. And he went, well, I think this is the best stuff since sliced bread. We're going to do it. And, and I went, oh, my God, it's going to happen. Uh, but we did the, these beautiful ads, went into the market, massive impact, and we grew their market share from 3% to 12% in six months. And I remember when I, later on when I went back to Singapore, when I was pitching for DHL Worldwide, uh, I got talking about this campaign. And the DHL guy said, oh, we remember that campaign. That destroyed us. Right. <laughs> right. 
And then uh, at the same time, because I, I want to try and parallel, because you, you, I'm a big fan of your art. So you were doing Gluism. Tell us about Gluism. Well, what happened there was when I first went to Hong Kong. I'm quite a diligent person, actually. I'm really bad at finances, so I like—I usually like my company to take care of it for me. Yeah. So I went, I went to my finance director. I said, "Look, I know the tax rate here is fifteen percent. Great. Is there a way I can save every month?" And he said, "Yes, you can. You can purchase uh, tax reserve certificates, and I can do it for you." I said, "Great. Sign me up." So a year later, I get my tax bill, and I work out it's thirty percent, which is twice the yeah. Hong Kong rate. So I go to my finance director and I say is there a mistake here he says oh no no I forgot to tell you the first year they, they charge you double I said what well they charge you double so why is that he says just in case you do a runner they, they've got the money in, in hand and, and they're not getting ripped off so by the time I was planning to come back to Singapore I was a year in arrears in my tax and I thought well how, how do I solve this so uh, I thought I know I'll be an artist I'll do some art I told a few friends in the agency, I'm going to be an artist, I need to make some money, so I'm going to do some art. Hey, you can't be an artist. I said, why not? Of course I can be an artist. I started actually learning the, the, kind of the techniques of the masters, the Rembrandt way of painting, which is you start with dark and you build up to light. Yeah. And uh, I actually started copying Rembrandt portraits and giving them away as, as gifts. And then, and I don't know how it happened, but I, I, Do you I've think always... you can teach yourself art? Uh, yeah, yeah, wow. definitely. definitely. You're not born? No. Oh, okay, it depends on how good you are. But no, it's like anything. It depends yeah. how committed you want to be. Yeah, yeah. Because your stuff was great. I mean, but t- t- talk about the glue thing. Yeah, no, so, so I don't know how I stumbled upon that. Glueism is, I use latex glue, which is the stuff you use in woodwork. And uh, I, I basically make almost like a Jackson Pollock pattern out of it. Yeah. Uh, and then let it dry and then paint over it. And it creates a lovely texture. So I, I kind of dubbed this uh, the art of glueism. I can't remember exactly how I got to it. Uh, I kind of blame my daughter in, in the official PR releases when I, at the time. So I had a very unique style. Uh, I did about 10 paintings, and I went to one gallery, which I'd found. They weren't interested. And then the, the second gallery I went to was the Lankoi Fong Gallery. Yeah. And they said, yeah, we love this. We've got a spare spot in November. Are you interested in uh, uh, you know, taking that slot? This was about May time. And I said, yeah, yeah, well, what do I need to do? He said, well, you need 30 paintings the gallery <laughs> and I had 10 but I knew only like two of them were good enough yeah. so I said okay and then so I, I, had, I had two jobs I was doing my day to day job at work and then I, at night time I was uh, I you was, sold a shitload right yeah, yeah no. so, so I, I had the gallery and I'd, I'd actually used my advertising skills to promote myself I was on yeah. radio I was on TV yeah. I was in magazines I had posters all over the place so by the time uh, the show happened uh, it was very, very well known. Uh, I sold 80% of the work, and then I started getting commissions. So uh, I managed to pay off my tax bill, and I managed to pay off my credit card bill. Brilliant. And I managed to take the whole family off to a, a trip to Cebu for a nice five-star I, no, I, I love the holiday. <laughs> I, I would actually level this at you. The actual work, as I've seen the work, is, I loved it. I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, I know you're not going to sell work that's not good, but like, it, it's very interesting, the motivation be, behind yeah, why yeah. you went and did it, but then you went and knuckled down and did yeah. it, and you got the money to clear yeah. whatever debt you had. You know, yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Um, so you, got, you became chairman somewhere, right? You know, yeah. In Ogilvy. Because yeah. I could never picture you as a chairman. Tell me what it was like <laughs> being a chairman. I, uh, so I came back to Singapore in 98, and funny enough, I'd actually resigned from Ogilvy One in Hong Kong and I was going to start up my own business. And uh, I had a very, very good relationship with Amex. 
and I was starting to get a bit bored of corporate life and you know all the stuff yeah. that happens to us occasionally in, in our business we go, we go through cycles I think and I thought I don't know I'll set, up a, I'll set up my own business Amex will come to me because they love me to bits mm. and I'll probably make a million dollars a year so I'd resigned and then Steve Eric, who was the ECD of Singapore resigned as well and so they were looking for someone to take his place and I've been going to Neil French's regional Great Britain meetings and Mike Murphy who was going to go over there as chairman had basically said um, well who should I go to Neil who should I, who should I employ as the new ECD and he said well you, you should try young Greenaway so they approached me O&M Singapore is in deep deep shit it was losing clients left right and centre and it was a bit, a bit nightmarish actually but then Mike got moved out and they brought in a guy called Tim Isaac me and him formed a really good partnership. I said to him, look, we've got to stop going for the government tenders. They're killing us because we haven't got the relationships. Mm. We did about 20 tenders in two years. We won two of them and came second in 80%. Mm. When you come second in 80% of the tenders, it means you've got the right strategy, the right work. You haven't got the relationship or the, or, or the or price. Too expensive. Yeah. But, but what, what was the chairman thing? How did you become chairman? So, yeah. then... After four years of being there as ECD, yeah. Tim went off to try and sort out Bangkok. Tim came to me and said, look, we're looking at other people outside, but we would really like you to have a crack at being the chairman. Uh, we think you'd be the right person. So I said yes. So I did that for two years. It was probably one of the golden periods of Ogilvy. Yeah. We did incredibly well business-wise. We started doing government tenders again, but this time we started winning them because we yeah. got the formula right. Uh, we were winning awards left, right, and centre. We were the most awarded agency at the time. We'd won, we'd become like the uh, the number one in the campaign Asia rankings four years in a row. I felt I became almost like a kindergarten teacher. I had big kid gloves on, and, I, and my job had become getting all the different MDs in the company to work together because we had a lot of companies. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't play together. So my job became getting them in a room and collaborating. We're all so what was, the, what was the being a chairman bit like for you? Because it just, you know, what was that being chairman of Ogilvy Singapore like? I think I got bored of it eventually. Right. Uh, I keep on seeing this debate coming into the news at the moment about do creative people make great uh, chairmen, mm. create great CEOs or bosses of agencies? Yeah. I think they can and quite often are great bosses of the company so you look at the right things I, I think the problem for me and this is probably a problem for many creative people is that you can get bored yeah. so you become a suit yeah. uh, and that's what happened to me I became a suit and I got very bored very quickly and, but, but after the two years I'm going alright I'm doing a good job as a suit I felt I, I was doing a good job as a suit it was in the numbers it was in the, in the, the mood of the agency you know, people were very happy the morale yeah. was high I'd introduced a lot of things which were innovative and working we were winning new business like you couldn't believe and we are still winning all the awards but I was bored, yeah. uh, and I wanted to desperately get back to my creative uh, DNA, if you like, and do stuff. So, so after that, I left to do my own mobile content That's company. Right. That's right, yeah. Uh, and there's supposed to be a deal with Martin, <laughs> which, which eventually fell through, because he, he added so many clauses to my contract that my... my really? My, Did he? Uh, uh, a, bit of, <laughs> a bit of sarcasm there, surely. Uh, but my, my lawyer basically said, look, if you sign that, I'll cut your balls off, because you'd be an idiot. Right. So I, I, I pulled out. I was doing quite well in that space, but I just wasn't making enough money quickly enough to support 
uh, my, my family lifestyle, which was quite rich at the time. And then, and then, and then the, the Sachi thing came up, and um, I'd been talking to Sachi a year earlier, and the job was still up that they'd offered me. And uh, so I thought, Craig okay. Davis. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, just a note slip to us that the bar is going to be opening in ten minutes because we're in a, we're in a little quiet bar in a hotel and the the barman was very kind <laughs> to tell us that we we he'll be opening in ten minutes so we're probably going to get a lot more noisy which will be good because we're going to the noisy stage of Andy's career um, now. Um, Okay, so we've been kicked out of the bar because it's getting all noisy, and we're just <laughs> finishing our conversation now in the foyer of Andy's hotel, and it's a good time to maybe wind it down. So, Andy and I started working together then in in, in uh, Singapore, and he's now at Sapient. So, tell me about the whole Sapient thing that you're doing right now. From about 2008 at Saatchi, uh, I kind of realised that. Well, I'd known for a long time that the world had been going digital, but I realised in 2008 that. We, are, we were missing the boat, and it was critical to get Saatchi into the digital space. And that proved really hard. There was just Why? A, I think it came from the very top. It came from Kevin's... I'll be very open about this. Yeah. It came from Kevin's obsession with love marks. He, he was so obsessed by leaving his legacy around love marks. I remember having a few conversations with him at Worldwide Creative Board meetings around the need to be digital and that we need to transform a company to embrace a digital way of thinking and his response was always everything's digital even cameras are digital now and which I always thought was a bit strange but it was a massive barrier and we had some forays into the digital space quite successfully but then it kind of fell back because there's no commitment by it behind it yeah. from a company point of view so by about 2000 it's one of my main frustrations is why I left you know? yeah. yeah and so by about 2000 and uh, when was it 2012 I was going through this horrible period where I kind of said, no way I'm going to do scam. Uh, it's going to kill our business because it wasn't real. So I want to get Scam, of course, being advertising that is just done for award purposes. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So I want to get back to transforming a client's business. Uh, and that meant that we couldn't focus on scam because we weren't big enough, didn't have the resources. So from about 2008, I stopped doing it. And in Sachi, the pressure you'd have on yourself and I did have for not winning the awards every year that you used to uh, was tremendous but mm. I just stuck to my guns and I said no no I'm doing the right thing and then finally by about 2012 I thought look I can't change this company can't do it they, they've set the, they've set their course and the rudder's been glued can't move and it's on its way yeah. and I didn't believe in it so I, I got approached by Sapien and uh, I thought they were a boutique little agency at, uh, when I first started talking to them and I started to learn that they're, they're actually a very big agency, yeah. mostly North American based. And Asia was more of a startup uh, situation for them. But they had twice as many people in their organization and twice the revenues. And I thought, oh my God, I've, I haven't heard of these guys. And they're already double the size. Well, very of clever because they went kind of back end first and then went front end, right? But they realized uh, about six years ago that their, their audience was CTOs, chief technology officers. Mm. But what was happening was that CMOs were being brought to the party. Yeah. So they had this new kind of client coming in. So if we were building for the CTO yeah. and the CMOs coming in and say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't actually help me with what I'm trying to do, yeah. you lose the business. Yeah. So they were, they were ahead of the time, actually, in terms of actually recognizing that these two roles were merging. Yeah. So they're now calling, calling these kind of these CTOs and CMOs a partnership now more and more. So they became a, an agency about six years ago. 
and started hiring people like me, not necessarily uh, advertising people, but people who got the new digital ecosystem and where it was going. I talked to many people in Sapient, and all the stuff I talked about in terms of dialogue, creating engagement, finding new channels and ways to get to consumers. Everyone seems to agree with what I was saying. And I, I, it sounded like I was talking to people who were kind of clones of myself almost. Yeah. So, In a way, it's kind of full circle. Yeah, yeah. So it became right back to the direct marketing yeah. story. This is direct marketing, but yeah. on, on steroids, yeah. literally. Yeah. You know, you can talk to people and automate it as well. And weirdly, they're hiring you for your ad thing, not for your direct marketing. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose I want, I've never asked you this question. I'd like to ask it to you as a closer, which is, What's the one ad that you didn't do that you'd love to have done? Uh, and it I, can be top ahead. Uh, yeah, I could say gorilla. I would never have written a gorilla. It's, yeah. not my, it's not in my mindset. I've got a different way of thinking about stuff. Like, I remember when it came out first, I, I, I was at Saatchi and I, I sent a note around to you know, all the guys and girls around the, around the region saying, this is the sort of advertising we need to, I mean, God, no chance yeah, yeah. but you know uh, the P&G needs to be doing and like I got these what, what is that like yeah, why yeah, huh? Yeah. Huh? again going back to the thing about the ammunition I now have is that Byron Sharp in his book uh, How Brands Grow he talks about uh, meaningless distinctiveness which is yeah. a gorilla drumming yeah. beats meaningful differentiation which is we've got more raisins yeah. in our chocolate every yeah. time like who wants to hear that from yeah. Cadbury but the problem is and you saw what happened you know they tried to repeat it they didn't actually know what they were doing it was like a yeah. one off kind of because the follow up yeah. ads after yeah. none of them hit the same well I've got, I've got a view on I, I love the meaningless distinction stuff however I think it's um, <coughs> it's relevant to a specific part of advertising yeah especially, especially FMCG stuff yeah. I, I've got a slightly different view I think there are, for me there, there are three main categories Mm. which are the aspirational brands where people want it for a certain reason for their own self-personification yeah. which goes back to people being 10 years old and what drove them then almost you've got a big big broad swathe of brands which fill that kind of middle bit which is like you know beers and stuff like that and yeah. chocolates and then you've got these other things which are smaller niche which is Stain Devils and Dolcalax and Oxy, yeah. which are problem-solving brands, yeah. where I, I want to know what it does, because yeah. I've yeah. got a problem and I need to get it fixed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it comes to a point where, as well, you, when brands are very well known for what they do, so when everyone knows what Gillette does and yeah, how exactly. it shaves, that's exactly. when you have yeah. to bring it to another level. Yeah. I know you stop keep telling me what you yeah. do all the yeah. time. I got it, yeah. you know. All right, look, that's a good time to finish. We've been moving around this hotel foyer trying to reduce noise. Uh, it's been fantastic. We're looking out on a little French street here in the sunshine as the sun goes down. And we actually, during one of the pauses, managed to get a beer. and uh, Made of Kanoa. Yeah, some beer from... There you uh, go. Uh, oh, yeah, the beer is made so from Which Kanoa. country is this? Is that aspirational no or is it... I mean, it's the I know it doesn't... <laughs> problem solving beer. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, but it doesn't have any gluten but in it. It just says gluten. Yeah, it says sans gluten, which is probably no gluten. Anyway, Andy, as ever, a pleasure to see you and to meet you and to talk to you. And I hope to have you on again. Uh, great pleasure, Shawnee, as always. Say hi to your dad. Hi, Dad. Hi, Major. Yeah.